This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There has been a plan underway for some time now to uh, to build a park right in the center of the core downtown on John Street and around King William. It is, as you might know, the site of a uh, an all night or a, a nighttime establishment that has been the scene of a couple of murders and a number of different other activities of uh, rather questionable character. Uh, the residents in the condos right across the street are trying to get a show cause hearing. They're trying to get this place shut down. Uh, the city, they say, is not being very cooperative about this, uh, but they, they do uh, have some help on this. Uh, Councillor Jason Farr, the uh, Councillor for Ward 2, downtown Hamilton, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what's happening. Councillor Farr, thanks so much for the time. How are you this morning? Very good, Bill. Happy to kick off another week of fine programming on CHML with Bill Kelly's show. Well, I, th- I do appreciate that, and uh, this is a rather timely topic, too, and very it interesting. Is. Let's let's talk a little bit, maybe, Jay, if we could just, uh, uh, for those that may not know, give a little history on, on this property in this area, and then we can get into some of the areas of conflict. Well, it's uh, an entire block uh, that is zoned for parkland, so that's key. And it's uh, John Rebecca is one of the corners, quite obviously, but it goes right along uh, John Street between Rebecca and King William and uh, Catherine Street. So it's quite a sizable chunk of uh, a city uh, master plan that's in the books to be developed into a park, one that was already to be developed into a park, were it not for uh, bright decisions by people like me, I, I take some responsibility in this, of flipping in the same neighborhood park priorities and in Beasley neighborhood, uh, switching up the uh, timelines for John Rebecca with the Gore Park Master Plan. And you can see that's nearly completed with just the smallest and final phase to go next spring, uh, while John Rebecca was uh, put on hold to make that happen in, in Beasley neighborhood. Yeah, and and I understand that, and and the you know, the fact that you've accepted some culpability on this council made those decisions. I mean, you had one vote on this. I get that, but uh, I I don't know. Maybe if who could foresee that there was going to be so many problems with this particular area, uh, especially since we as a, a city, as especially as a city council for that matter, have been trying to and get people to move back to the core, and that's starting to happen. And and those core lofts, which are located right across the road, have been one of those great success stories. And, and therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know, I applaud, and as a matter of fact, uh, Dale Mugford, his wife, Roz, that they've been working uh, very hard to gather enough evidence for Mr. Leanders, our director of uh, licensing, uh, since they presented to GIC some months ago about some of the problems with their neighbor, Club 77. And I just spoke with him this morning, Bill. We had quite a conversation on the phone uh, regarding uh, what are the next steps. He is uh, not surprisingly, and on behalf of hundreds of others, very upset that uh, for all the work, the uh, dozens of uh, uh, firsthand accounts that have been shared by the residents of that building, and I think others, the, the, uh, the I think, two dozen video uh, uh, snippets that also acted as evidence that were forwarded to, to our licensing staff doing the investigation, are, according to our legal staff, insufficient at this time. They continue to investigate, but are insufficient at this time to warrant a tribunal. And, and so Dale, understandably, is upset. We were missing each other on the weekend, calling back and forth. But uh, certainly, uh, I continue very closely uh, to dialogue with, with Dale, who represents many others, who obviously see a different future than the one they're currently enduring. All right, let me ask you about that. Uh, and I understand that city staff are rather uh, hesitant to get involved in this dialogue at this stage, but I know you've talked to them, and you've obviously talked to the concerned neighbors. And we've heard stories about videos that have presented about public urination, about assaults going on on the streets, 
Uh, we already know about the, the the murders, of course, that were committed just uh, in front of this, this building as well. And, and and for staff to say there's insufficient evidence at this time, uh, the obvious question here is where's the bar set? At what point will they say, okay, now we got a problem here that we need to investigate? So, Bill, that's that was a very good question. I mean, certainly one that Dale's asking right now, the resident on behalf of hundreds of others. Uh, it's one you're asking right now. It's kind of an obvious question at this time because I think there was an anticipation that in some form or another there would be a second level pursuing um, um, addressing these issues with Club 77. And at this time, while the investigation, I'm told, continues, our legal staff has advised after seeing the evidence compiled by licensing that there's not enough. Uh, the question is, what is enough? That's a very good question. That's our next question. And it couldn't happen uh, in a more timely fashion because tomorrow we have planning and economic development. As you know, Bill, licensing falls under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. I sit on the committee, and I'm formally going to ask that question. I'm going to ask, please report back to us on what it is, what it takes, uh, with respect to evidence gathered to take it to the next level in terms of uh, enforcement. Because we don't know. We, we don't know. Are they one-off cases? Uh, we certainly have shut down establishments before for, for operating. I'm not suggesting we shut down Club 77, but we have enforced in, in, in radical ways in the past and in the downtown core and, and even shut down uh, an establishment in the past based on evidence. Well, what was that evidence there? What's the barometer? And that's a question I'm going to ask by, by formal uh, motion tomorrow at Planning and Economic Development. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not going to try to draw a parallel, a parallel here between, for instance, uh, the Sandbar Tavern on King Street that was shut down some years ago and this, because I, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I hear anecdotally from the, the, the neighbors, as you do, certainly, of course, being the counselor for the area, but you have to ask yourself just exactly what are you looking for? What have they not seen that they want to see? And, and, and we should also clarify, by the way, that what the neighbors are asking for here is not to shut this establishment down, but to have a hearing, to at least have the evidence and, and have somebody adjudicate on this. I mean, it's, it's not let's just go right to the end game here and, and close this place down. Let's find out. And, and I can't understand for the life of me right now why you can't at least have a hearing on this. And, and that's, the, you know, again, that's the big question. We do have, like other cities, a quasi-judicial forum known as the Licensing Tribunal to address issues. These are issues that neighborhoods have with establishments that are licensed by the city of Hamilton. It's a licensing tribunal. I'm not part of that tribunal, uh, but I am uh, uh, very interested to know what it, what it takes to get in that door, to sit at that table and to have that quasi-judicial body made up of counselors working collectively with legal staff and licensing staff on a way forward that's compatible, much more compatible than what we're seeing in this case with with uh, the neighborhood in this in this particular case. So I, you know, it's a it's a really good question. Now, Bill, of course, and we've talked about this before. On the other side of the coin, and you opened with this, and I, it's not lost on me. And, and much of the, my conversation this morning with Dale was, th- this is like a two-pronged approach. For me, a lot of the focus, what is in my control, and I've shared this with my colleagues as well since that brilliant delegation that these residents had some months ago to General Issues Committee, there is a plan for a park. And how do we expedite that plan? How do we get going on what's already in the books as the John Rebecca Master Plan? And that's much more in my control. That's been a big part of my focus while the residents have been working with licensing and gathering information on the other side of the, the coin, on the other side of the ledger, my focus has been how can we uh, get creative, think outside the box, find additional funding. As you know, Bill, I've told you in the past, 
In 2018, so less than a year from now, we're deliberating a budget that includes $1.75 million to make this park so. So it, there, there, there's going to be more funds needed. What do we need to do to get the park on track? Because, you know, the, the campaign itself by the residents is called Park the Violence. Park's right in, in the, the header as we move forward. It's where, where and when can we get these uh, expectations on the table to make that a reality? And that's much more something as the ward councillor I'm, 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 I'm wholeheartedly pursuing. Well, and this is one of the things I find quizzical about this whole process, is there is an inevitability here that this is going to become a park. That's part of the city's plan. It's already zoned for it. You may not have enough funding for it yet, but it, it is going to happen. So I, I can't understand why, why licensing is dragging their heels on this right now. Uh, because this, at some point, this building is going to leave, or, or is there a plan? And, and maybe the neighbors need to hear this too. It, does this plan for the park include the fact that, that that licensed establishment is going to stay there, or is it going to be gone? Well, no. The master plan clearly shows an entire block of park, and like I say, that entire block is already zoned parkland. So, so no, 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 no buildings that currently exist are part of the ultimate master plan for the park. So, with that in mind, then. Uh, why can't you simply expedite this? Why are you waiting for 2018? Well, budgets are in place. Like I said, we shifted priorities in the Beasley neighborhood. We went to their Gore Park and flipped it with their John Rebecca Park in the same neighborhood. And, and, um, and, and you know, everything is in a 10-year capital. Uh, John Rebecca stays in that, in that plan. Uh, and so, I, you know, why? that's a good question. But, you know, obviously it comes down to budgets and and. I think that given the circumstances, what we've talked about mostly uh, with respect to the, the nature of the relationship between this establishment and the, and the many, many people who are opposed to some, some of their practices, uh, it helps the argument to expediate the process. But I think it, it would also help with terms, in terms of expediating the process if we had some uh, uh, solid ideas that show maybe partnerships in uh, developments in and around that area that could get this thing on the books faster, that could expedite the current plan before us. Like I say, 1.75 already allocated for 2018's budget isn't enough. But, but what other ways can we think, whether it's outside the box or, or good planning, uh, with respect to the uh, neighborhood as a whole that can share in some of the responsibilities of uh, not only obviously uh, maintaining or building the park, but maintaining over time. There's, there's, there's all sorts of machinations and possibilities that I've been meeting with staff on that I've talked. We've had all players meetings on this, and uh, certainly I've reported uh, some of these ideas. Uh, one we had fell off the rails. I can't share it. It was, uh, it was, uh, uh, an in-camera uh, conversation, but that there was there's uh, not only one idea. There's plenty of ideas in which we can move forward, and and I think it's going to include some partnerships. It's not if we want to move it more quickly, it's going to include some partnerships. It really comes down to the money bill. To answer your question in short, all right. Let me let me get into this then. Let's let's assume that okay, you're going to stick to your schedule. So 2018, that you begin the process to actually get a park there. Uh, something has to happen to that building. Is expropriation uh, an option here? Have you had discussions? And and frankly, are the owners of this establishment right now willing partners in this? Are they willing to let go, or is there going to be a court battle? Because if there is, you better start it now, or well, this, thing, thought, this thing's going to get delayed again and again and again. I thought I saw. A document uh, put out by this establishment that they're they're uh, willing on the expropriation side. I don't have it in front of me, so 
I'll uh, I'll have that caveat that that's my understanding. That's what I saw. How long does that How long does that process usually take? It depends, Phil. It, it, it's uh, I've been through a few, not a lot. Um, it could be a year process. It could be a two year process. It 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 all depends. And um, well, with uh, that in mind, then would it not be prudent? To begin that process now, if you want to put a park there in 2018, it's, it's 2017. You haven't got a whole lot of time here. We're not. We're that, not. You know what this would do? It would give those residents, those concerned residents, at least a light at the end of the tunnel to know that, okay, fine, that at least they've started the ball rolling here. I, I agree. And, and nothing's off the table. Let's put it that way. But if you, if you go down that road, and you're going to be at this meeting tomorrow, you're a member of the committee, and obviously this is something that you want to bring up. Uh, if, if you send that message that, listen, uh, we're going to start this thing now, because if you don't and you simply wait till 2018, then you're really looking at 2020 if it's going to be a year or two before you can f- clear up the expropriation, which, which only just pushes this back even further. I think what the residents are looking for here is somebody to say, yeah, we're moving on this. And right now they don't see any movement. Yeah, I, I, I can't argue with you. I, I don't. I don't foresee moving a motion to expropriate Club 77 tomorrow. I do receive, uh, I do do foresee I will be moving a motion to address that one stream. As I said, there's two here. Work hard on expediting the park development. It's in the books. It's zoned, everything else. But also try to address what does it take to, uh, to get, what, what kind of evidence does it take to warrant a tribunal? That's the question I'll ask the motion tomorrow. I, I, I wish I could offer... Uh, many more details. I can only share and definitively share. I have not lost track of this file. We have met many times uh, with staff. I continue to to uh, uh, a dialogue with Dale and his uh, team that is working hard on uh, also expediting the park development with their campaign. And uh, I, I hope that sooner rather than later, Bill, if this is any kind of positive takeaway, that we'll have some form of way forward in the in in the near future i don't want it to no one wants it to stretch out in the timelines that you're sharing no one no one does you're listening to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml this is a almost a surreal last couple of months since november the 8th and the election uh, in the u.s election of course in which uh, donald trump was uh, uh, selected as president the inauguration of course is coming up on friday and, and set aside the small stuff, who's going to sing at this ceremony, who, who much cares about that? Although, you know, a lot of people seem to want to make a big deal about this. The other element of this that, that I, I think an awful lot of people find disturbing uh, is, uh, is Donald Trump's attack on uh, other individuals. Who Anybody who says anything against Donald Trump all of a sudden becomes a uh, Twitter victim. And the latest is uh, Congressman John Lewis, a civil rights activist. Now, uh, those that may not know the story, uh, Lewis, of course, uh, is a... Uh, civil rights activist who marched in Selma, Alabama with Martin Luther King and was very prominent back in those days uh, in uh, the civil rights movement and uh, has been elected 16 times now to Congress. He represents a, an area down in Georgia. But anyway, Congressman Lewis uh, questioned the president-elect's legitimacy, and he said that he will not be attending the inauguration, the first time that he will uh, skip on an inauguration since he was uh, selected to Congress. Uh, this caused a spat between he and the president. Uh, the president started to respond on Twitter uh, to uh, Congressman Lewis's criticisms of Trump and the presidency, suggesting that the Russian hacking did have, uh, this is Mr. Lewis, uh, Congressman Lewis now suggesting uh, on uh, Meet the Press the other day on NBC that the Russian hacking did have an influence on the U.S. election, and he feels that because of that Donald Trump is not legitimate uh, when it comes to being president of the United States. 
So Trump uh, tweeted back that next uh, day, 7.50 that morning, Congressman John Lewis should spend more time on fixing and helping his district, which is in horrible shape and falling apart, not to mention crime-infested. Rather than falsely complaining about the election results, all talk, 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 no action, no results. Sad. That was uh, Mr. Trump's tweet, and uh, many people have responded to that as well, and uh, not just to the tweets of uh, Mr. Trump towards uh, Congressman Lewis, but this whole attitude of uh, simply going after people that he considers to be on the other side, I guess, of some key issues. He uh, had some harsh words on Twitter from uh, Angela Merkel, of course, the, the uh, president of Germany, uh, earlier today. Uh, and, and once again, this this seems to be indicators of, of, of an ongoing problem. Uh, <laughs> there's one thing to use social media, but others are suggesting that, uh, that Mr. Trump is maybe taking this to the extreme. Joining us to talk about this is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilford Laurier University. Barry, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us here today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, and on it goes. I mean, it's just fill in the blank. Who's uh, Mr. Trump after today? And, and John Lewis, who many people are suggesting is uh, uh, maybe one of the people that Trump should have taken a pass on. But that doesn't seem to be in his DNA to be able to do that. He's not even president of the honeymoon's over. I mean, it's really quite, quite remarkable. But I, I mean, we, we, we can't keep talking about the fact that this is a unique, unprecedented individual in the White House because it, it, that was true months ago. Um, look, uh, I, I think he's just, just heading for a fall um, in, in so many ways. Just in the past week, you mentioned a few of them. He's, he's gone after Angela Merkel. He's gone after suggesting NATO should be over. Even if he feels that way, he frankly shouldn't have said it. He's gone after the Chinese on the... Um, on the One China policy, uh, the implications with regard to John Lewis involved the black community and the black caucus beyond him. He's gone after the media. He's gone after the intelligence industry. He's gone after a number of Republicans as well as Democrats. Uh, he just wants to fight with everybody. And, and see, that's not the way you run a successful political operation. And frankly, I don't think he, f- he fully understands the implications. He thinks that because he was able to get away with this for different reasons during the primary process and then indeed won the election largely on a fluke, he didn't win the most votes of of course, but nonetheless, he, he he took the electoral college because of about seventy-five thousand or so votes. That that he can walk on water, that he can do anything, and um, he's. I, I think he's already heading for a fall. Uh, I mean, again, I may have mentioned when I was last on with you that his poll ratings had fallen from forty-six percent in the election itself down to thirty-seven in the Quinnipiac poll last week. Uh, this is just going to uh, just going to go on. He's got no message discipline. He just wants to fight with everyone all the time. And ironically, and again, I, I, I'll give you another theory which hasn't been widely circulated about this thing with Lewis, that indeed, uh, if the Democrats want to undermine him, all that you do is tweak his ego, and he'll he'll blow up again, and he'll he'll his popularity will decline even further. It may be that this will ultimately will become a strategy for the Democrats to just say unkind things about Trump and allow him to sort of blow up like a firecracker. But if on the other side of that argument, I, I, I try to look at this through Trump's eyes. Uh, and, and since he's, as, and you just listed some of the things that have gone on, Barry, since the convention, let's, let's maybe go back that far. Uh, here's a guy who is insulted on, on a national basis, a prisoner of war, John McCain, uh, parents of a slain U.S. soldier, uh, a beauty queen, a civil rights icon now. And, and with each time that he does this, Barry, he seems to get away with it. And uh, the when observers are watching this stuff, they say, well, well, that was a big misstep. Boy, that's going to cost him. It doesn't seem to. Well, it is in the polls now. 
Um, you're right. Um, and again, I, as well as many others, were surprised throughout the last year and a half in terms of the fact that he could seem to, to walk on water, to go borrow the metaphor I used a minute ago, uh, that in fact he could get away with it. I don't think he's getting away with it so much anymore, and uh, we'll see. I don't want to suggest it's over, but the fact that he has declined. One, one should remember that normally new presidents, and he's not even in yet, I, I, though the inauguration is on, on Friday, but new presidents normally have the most popular ratings in their, their whole presidency. Obama was over 70%. George W. Bush was over 60% at the time of the inauguration. Trump is now down below 40 and if this keeps going, I think it's, it's going to sink further. And at that point, it's not so much the Democrats that can undo him because they're expected to be the opposition anyway. It's when he starts to become a sufficient embarrassment for the Republicans that enough people get buyer's remorse. I'm not saying it's going to happen 100%. Indeed, I've been as wrong as many other people during the last year and a half about his ratings. But um, he cannot run an efficient White House this way. He is not going to be able to get things done if, in fact, he's in, I haven't even mentioned the things he said about other members of Congress calling the Democratic leader in the Senate a clown. Um, he seems to think this, this works just fine. I don't think it's the learning curve, the fact that he has no reason to think that he, he has to change. He doesn't want to seem to listen to people that don't tell him what he wants to think well, or, what he, or don't tell him what he thinks to begin with. But, Barry, this is a guy who in just a few days is going to be the leader of the United States of America and, and arguably the most important and, and powerful uh, public office in the world these days. Uh, and, and there are some, some severe and, I think, legitimate concerns at this stage about how he he's going to carry on with this job, uh, you know, you you know he always talked. Well, he didn't always talk about, it, but in some of the speeches he talked about, you know, make America great again, building bridges. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. He's pissing everybody off, and oh, not absolutely. just in America, but I'm talking on an international level as well. I couldn't agree more. And indeed, under the best of circumstances, getting things done. You know, Obama. You know, is a challenge. Obama was criticized for the fact that he was not jolly enough. He wasn't not gregarious enough in sort of inviting members of Congress from his party and from the other party. Now you've got a guy who's actually going out of his way to be hostile, to be negative, forgetting about the fact that he's not inviting people over for, for, for golf or tennis or to, uh, to have dinner at the White House. Um, it's going to be very difficult for, for anybody to be able to actually get things done through Congress when it involves so much. That's another problem, of course, with the Obama presidency, was that the, uh, nobody wanted to compromise, particularly the, the, the Republicans. Um, you don't compromise with people that have just insulted you. And I, I, I think oh, Trump feels that he can get a lot of mileage out of going after the political establishment. But at some point now as president, he's actually going to have to have real accomplishments. When he was running for, for Congress or for the presidency, he would just have slogans like draining the swamp and making America great again. And uh, that seemed to be good enough. From here on, he's going to have a real track record that he's going to have to have accomplishments, and it's not at all clear that that's going to ever happen. Well, and the reality here is that you've got to have, if, if, if you don't have people on your side, at least you have people that, that will respect you. I mean, when there will be some negotiations, but I saw the, the, the message from the Chinese government today that simply said you can't bargain away everything that you think you're going to get in this world. Uh, so they're upset about this. Germany is upset about this because, uh, you know, to go back to his stuff about the auto industry, at first of it was Mexico, and then on Friday, of course, he included Canada in that, suggesting the tariffs could be applied to, uh, to autos that are manufactured here. Then all of a sudden he reaches across the Atlantic Ocean and he starts threatening BMW and saying we're going to do the same thing to you. Uh, it's It's... 
it's phenomenal right now that he's actually he's burning bridges, not he's, building he's, bridges. He's going after everyone. Look, I think the Canadian auto industry is should feel less threatened than perhaps they might right now. Uh, the cars that come into Canada and are, may have final assembly here are going to have all sorts of American parts. Similarly, uh, with regard to American cars, so much of the, the major auto industry now is so integrated that indeed the, the parts are coming in both directions on a regular kind of basis. And to be able to implement anything, I, I don't want anybody in the auto industry to feel unduly threatened in the short term by, by the, the comments that are coming out of his mouth. There are sectors of the Canadian economy that could be threatened uh, by some of his trade ideas, but they would be in the area of agriculture, particularly softwood lumber. Um, I can't imagine how, in fact, when so much of cars assembled in Canada or in the United States include components from the other country, how that ever can be, can be uh, uh, you know, implemented in a way that would genuinely threaten our industry. What he's really trying to do, and he's concerned particularly about Mexico, um, what it seems that he's particularly after is American factories now moving from the United States to another place. I don't think we're going to see new factories coming into Canada from the United States. Those are the targets that are much easier to go after. Uh, the Canadian auto industry is just too integrated with the United States for that ever to be a, a target that could be seriously challenged, at least from my perspective. Well, exactly. And the auto parts manufacturers, I mean, and, and there are many of them here in the Hamilton area, but there are many in Michigan and Ohio as well that, that would be crippled by these sorts of things, too. But there seems to be two messages, uh, Barry, uh, coming out of, of of the Trump team right now. There, there's the, the missives from Mr. Trump himself, and, and those are the things that are making the headlines. But there, oftentimes it, it seems to be followed up by a softer, uh, I don't want to say more congenial, but maybe more middle-of-the-road response from some of the people on his transition team and his staff that, well, this is what Mr. Trump really meant to say. Uh, for instance, with automakers, uh, you know, that we don't want plants leaving the states. We didn't really want to uh, you know, impose a tariff on all the, although that's what Trump said, they're suggesting that's not what he really meant. And and I guess that's just all probably encapsulated with uh, Kellyanne Conway's comment last week to say, uh, stop criticizing Mr. Trump for what he says and try to feel what's in his heart. Well, w- when yeah. you're putting it on Twitter, that's what's in your heart, I guess, isn't it? Look, uh, I think Kellyanne Conway's, she says it with a smile, but I think Kellyanne Conway's credibility is ra- rapidly diminishing as well. Look, it's a real challenge for the people, particularly in the Trump team. But I would think that many of the Republicans are, are, are very running scared in terms of not knowing just what, uh, what, what, what they've got down the road with him. In the short run, they're hoping to be able to... I think the, the Republican strategy was this was a guy who would just go and have rallies and let the running of the government go to Mike Pence and somebody they could trust. But that does not seem to be the case. The, uh, the whole issue of the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, how that's going to be dealt with, the Republicans have a very market-oriented approach to how, how this is to be done, and that does not seem to be consistent with, uh, with what Donald Trump wants, wants to pursue. I'm not at all confident about how much of anything is going to get done in this atmosphere, because when one studies American government with the checks and balances and the separation of powers, one really comes to understand how difficult it is to get anything done under the best of circumstances. We're now in a much more polarized era where, in fact, the Republicans under Mitch McConnell in the Senate especially did everything they could do to shut down the, the, the um, Obama agenda. And, in fact, um, the, the Democrats are likely to do the same thing unless Trump is going to do things they want. Now, maybe some of the things he's talking about on health care will, will please the uh, He's suggesting that, indeed, he's going to have better coverage for, for less money. If so, it's going to have to be at government subsidies, and the debt is going to even get greater. That, that may please Democrats more than Republicans. We don't know what the heck is going on. Now, I'm sure on Friday there will be a, a, a conciliatory sounding speech where he will talk about wanting to reach out to all Americans, whatever that means. But that's just, those are just words. And, indeed, he's used them in the past. 
uh, the credibility that he is going to be able to uh, to be able to have in getting his policies done. I, I, I think within a few months uh, he's going to be fighting with the Republicans as much as Democrats. Well, that's the, the the view of an awful lot of people these days. You know, they always accuse the Democrats of trying to be obstructionist now. Uh, which is the kettle calling the pot black, I guess. But but the reality here is the Republicans may be his biggest obstacle in the Congress with it because I mean, when you listen to people like McConnell and and Paul Ryan, uh, they're not on the same page as Trump on a lot of these issues. And Trump, I, I think I mentioned it recently on your show, but Trump as recently as 2008 was a registered Democrat contributing money to, to Hillary Clinton. Um, again, there's just so much. Again, we can go into one, one cow patty after another of things he's stepping in. Uh, but uh, indeed, for him to be upset about being called illegitimate, that's what he was doing with Barack Obama. That got his whole career going. The, the hypocrisy is, is, is unlimited in terms of what he's saying. He wants everyone to say nice things about him while he goes around insulting everybody else. It isn't going to work. He's clearly got the temperament of a child. That, you know, again, we've talked about that before. Uh, but that indeed, uh, I don't think this is the way to run a successful presidency. So where's, where's the tipping point? At, at what point does this thing start to fall off the rails? I mean, clearly, I, I mean, technically he's not the president until Friday and when he accepts the oath of office. But he's going to start to try to get some things done at this stage. And I, I'm not getting the sense that there's a whole lot of support anywhere on Capitol Hill from Democrats or Republicans for some of the things that Trump wants to do. He will get some things done. The executive orders, um, in fact, toward the, well, for much of the last half or six years of the Obama presidency, when he was running into a block uh, with uh, the Senate um, and Congress generally, that in fact he started issuing executive orders. Executive orders that were just basically undertaken by Barack Obama signing them, those can be undone, at least most of them can be undone. Some get a little bit complicated for various reasons. He will seem to be doing that. He will seem to be doing things. But getting new legislation through is going to be a challenge. Um, There are certain things. There's a process called reconciliation, uh, which allows anything that's connected to the annual budget to be basically approved within the, with the Senate by a straight um, uh, majority vote, 51 votes. Um, I think there may be some Republicans on some issues. For example, there's some Republicans in the caucus that aren't at all happy with the idea of, uh, of cutting off Planned Parenthood, which the conservative caucus in the Republican Congress wants. But there's a, a few people. It only takes really two or th- really three, I guess, because a, a tie vote would be, de- would be decided by Pence. Three votes in the United States Senate where Republicans um, de- 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 you know, defect uh, can undo things. But as, so long as they can avoid that on uh, some matters, including tax cuts, and perhaps on the idea, the principle of, um, of repealing of, uh, Obamacare, that can be undertaken in that way. The principle, however, that can be pushed down down the road uh, down the road further. But the, uh, most of of the the guts of Obamacare, and indeed most other legislation that involves meaningful change, is going to require uh, 60 votes in the Senate. Whatever the House isn't such a problem, but the Senate is 60 votes in the Senate, and that means that eight Democrats are going to have to defect in order to implement any new ideas that the Republicans want. And really, what I think we're moving back to, for the most part, is gridlock, except on those matters that are executive orders, and there will be some. In fact, does his um, Obama's suggestion that in fact he wants to give lower priority to uh, what are referred to as the dreamers, the children of um, for, for deportation, the children of people who when they came over um, as, as children, uh, their parents brought them in illegally. The fact that they would be immune from any possible deportation action—that's a concern that many people in that category have. And there are many other, on lesser items, there are many other executive orders that have been issued by the president. So I don't want to make it sound like nothing will happen. There will seem to be action, but it will be on the executive orders. It won't involve, for the most part, uh, new legislation. 
is there a buffer between Trump and, 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 and the Congress in a situation, somebody who, who who can act as an intermediary? I mean, even to go back eight years to when Obama got in there, and of course he had a uh, a Republican Congress to deal with at that stage. And, Not and, in the beginning. No, he had, he had two yeah, clean years. Yeah, but he, had, he did. And, uh, but there was some concern there about, well, this is a guy who's, you know, same criticism we've heard from so many other presidents. Is he qualified to get this thing done and do all these things that we're supposed to? And the biggest criticism of his first term was that he had that opportunity for two years and didn't get an awful lot moved in there. But he did have a transition team that could kind of work with this, the Congress and this. Is, is there a person or a, a group of people that are, are doing that right now for Trump? Well, Mike Pence is playing that role, and I think Mike Pence has probably been more responsible than we know with regard to uh, making recommendations among many of the people who have actually been brought into the cabinet-level positions and the other positions, because Mike Pence knows people, and if he doesn't know them directly, he knows people who know people. Um, so, in fact, the, uh, my, and Mike Pence understands that the way to get along with Trump is just uh, don't say anything unkind at any time, just always explain it away, and that's what his staff have learned. But not everybody else is necessarily playing that rule. You ask the question as to what's the tipping point. We have may, or may have already reached the tipping point. We certainly have reached the tipping point of a decline in public support. If that continues, maybe he will say something on Friday that will um, excite people. I'm not suggesting the world can't change. I've certainly been wrong about this process for the last year and a half. But we are seeing certainly a decline in public support for Donald Trump. And public opinion moves in waves. If that continues, the Republicans are going to be getting off uh, the ship pretty quickly because they're going to understand that their own political futures are going to be tied to Trump's. Again, this notion of buyer's remorse, I think, may very well already have started. And the irony is that it's happened so quickly, even before he's actually in office. That's totally unprecedented as well. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton City Councilors in their Planning and Economic Development Committee meeting, which will be tomorrow are uh, going to uh, be voting on what they call a new personal transportation providers bylaw. Now, this is supposed to put to an end this conflict that seems to have gone on between Uber and the taxi industry here in the city for the last number of years. Uh, They say it's a compromise situation. That's the way some of the councillors seem to be characterizing it as well. But it's not sitting well with both sides, and and I'm not so sure that this is going to end the conflict. It just may be another chapter in this. Joining us to talk about this is Anthony Rizzuto, the president of Blue Line Taxi here in Hamilton. Anthony, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, it, it, it just seems every time we start going down this road, we end up way back at square one again. Uh, first of all, maybe just to set the context here, why don't you give us your thoughts on what's being proposed here? Well, what's being proposed is uh, some changes to uh, to the licensing bylaw to kind of encompass Uber into uh, uh, the city's uh, uh, legal the, the problem that, that we're foreseeing is it doesn't look like it's going to work, uh, and there's a number of reasons why. Well, and let's talk about some of those specifics, because uh, the, the, first of all, the, to bring them into the fold, uh, we're told that Uber will pay uh, a certain amount every year uh, to, to be legitimate, I guess. In other words, $50,000 annual fee plus $0.06 cents per trip. Uh, that's going to generate, they say, about $110,000 for the city. So I suppose that, that makes the finance department pretty happy that they're finally going to get some money f- from uh, from this organization. But let's let's compare apples to apples here, Anthony. When you look at numbers like that, compare that to, to the, the requirements for the taxi industry here in this city. Well, the taxi industry pays the city pretty close to a million dollars a year, every year. So there's 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 a big difference in in what they're going to be charging Uber, but one of the the, the shortfalls on this proposed bylaw is all the information that they're going to be getting 
they're going to get it from Uber themselves. So set aside the $50,000, but the six cents per trip. So they're going to rely on Uber to say, here's how many trips we did. And, you know, I mean, are they going to be honest and tell them the exact number? I don't know. The, the, the problem is, is that there's no jurisdictional boundaries for Uber. So we can put in all these rules and regulations, but the guy who's an Uber in Dunville comes into Hamilton, how are you going to find out who he is? And he doesn't get a copy of, you know, what's required to pick up in Hamilton. Here's, I get this. I get, I get noted from a, a, somebody who identified themselves as a, as a plate owner, a taxi uh, industry uh, person who's been here for quite some time, and and back and forth this morning after this thing was was announced, and and as we mentioned, it's going to be dealt with planning, and he he seemed to be in, uh, suggesting that you know what this looks like. The city just gave up and said, you know what, we can't nail these guys. We can't we can't charge. It's trying to like nailing Jello to the wall. Uh, to try to find them, so let's just let them into the fold, and it's it's not going to be fair, but at least they're there. What are your, that, what are, makes, what are your yeah, thoughts well, on that? That makes sense. I mean, and and dealing with with the city and over the last little while, a lot of the the indications are the city's very pro Uber. Um, you know, we we we've, we've had it in discussions. We've seen some of the stuff that they've uh, that they presented. Um, you know, they piggybacked on other municipalities to 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 determine this bylaw instead of making a unique tailored one for Hamilton. It's going to be work. There's no doubt about it. But they do a good job on policing us. I mean, we get roadside checks continuously. I mean, we're always being fined, and for whatever reasons, the city determines. You know, what you know, what we we have to have. You know, snow tires from December 1st to March 15th, for instance. I mean, if you don't, yeah, you're going to get a fine. I mean, all these things that they do and why they regulate us is, is for public safety. And they're just choosing to ignore it. You know, you know, for you know, the, the same exact competitor as us. All right. Well, here's here's another question I got as I read over some of these requirements that uh, that Uber is going to have to uh, fall into. Uh, for instance, you could tell me. I know if we called City Bylaw right now, they could tell me how many licensed taxis are operating in the city right now. How many Uber drivers are there going to be, and well, how are they going to track that? That's the whole problem. You don't know. I mean, just because you reside in Hamilton and you're an Uber driver doesn't mean you're actually working in Hamilton. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they 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 can cherry-pick any municipality that they, they choose to work at. So how do you get around it? Falling short of, you know, getting yourself a, uh, you know, a credit card and, and, and doing, a, you know, an Uber transaction to, to find out who the, you know, the driver is, I mean, that only goes so far. Um, so they, they, if you looked at the bylaw, they said that they have to be identifiable by putting something in their windshield. They don't, show the, they don't say the size. They don't say what it's going to be. And, I mean, at that point, the driver can choose to put it up there if he likes or not. So I don't know how you're going to police a bylaw that looks that, that's this vague. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I mean, I, I, I know when a cab goes past me because, you know, there are identifiable markings on the thing. Uh, there may or may not be on an Uber vehicle. I mean, you know, maybe there is if there's a passenger. If there's not a passenger, do they take it out of the window? I don't know. I, uh, and, again, I'm asking questions here, and I'm sure you guys are looking at this and asking the very same questions. Uh, you know, it's what you said to me the first time you were on this program to talk about Uber, and that's going back a long ways now, Anthony. Mm-hmm. What you said that the industry was looking for here was a level playing field, and uh, I, I don't see that that bylaw provides this. Well, no, it's not even close to being level. I mean, it's a start. Don't get me wrong, but I, I think they need to to really get a better handle on on Uber and how they operate. I mean, I mean, they it's 
it's tough to, I mean, I, I don't know how you, you, would, you would grasp it. I mean, you know, where are these guys coming from? Just because there's a Ticat game in town and you get Ubers coming in from Toronto and Niagara Falls and St. Catharines, well, you know, how, again, how does bylaw treat that? I mean, they're asking Uber to provide the information. Their safety checks, their criminal checks, it's all going to be done in-house by, by Uber. Well, here, here's, here's, a, here's a real-life scenario. There's, a, a, there's dozens of drivers that have had their taxi license revoked from the city for certain reasons, and the city deemed them unsafe to be driving a taxi. Yet, we found two of them spotted driving an Uber vehicle. So, you know, how does, how does the public safety come into play there? The city said, look, you're, you're not deemed fit enough to drive a taxi. And they just said, well, so what? I'll just go right around you. Well, let's, let's get into that. And, and I know a little bit about what I speak here. I spent nine years on the licensing committee when I was on city council and, and, and dealt with a lot of the things that you've just talked about. You know, people that have gone over, you know, too many demerit points or they're driving infractions of some kind and, or sometimes, as you mentioned, it might even a personal issue where there was question as to whether or not they were deemed to be, you know, able to drive a cab here in this town. Uh, there were public safety issues with the vehicles in some situations. Uh, and the city, you're right, uh, does a pretty decent job, I think, of, of, of policing the taxi industry. Now, there's an argument to be made that maybe it's it's over-policed, but we, we can get into that in a second. But I don't see that there's a whole lot going on here with Uber. Uh, in other words, with the drivers, are they going to be vetted? Is there going to be some screening process? I, I don't see that in here, or unless I'm missing it. Well, no. I mean, Uber is going to be apparently doing it themselves, which uh, through the grapevine we heard they don't do it at all. But the problem is, how do you do it for a certain municipality? I mean, you know, so there, there's, there's Uber drivers everywhere. But how do you know that they're going to be into Hamilton or they're going to be, you know, servicing the public here? You, you don't. You know, an interesting one, uh, uh, an Uber driver that I do know, <laughs> he... Um, he works uh, out of a different area, but he got a trip uh, to Niagara Falls. He crossed the border. He crossed the border, and he was getting Uber calls in, in Buffalo, New York. He's Canadian. So, again, like, you can actually cross a country and continue to operate, and no one's policing you. So where do we go from here? There's one other issue I want to talk about before we talk about next steps here, uh, and that's accessibility, uh, because there are pretty stringent laws that went into place in Ontario some time ago now about providing accessible transportation, and the taxi industry is is under that now. I mean, you are, as, as for instance, of Blue Line, you are required by law to provide accessible transportation. Is that right? Absolutely. And uh, and, and there's a cost to that, obviously. Those those vehicles usually have to be equipped with, uh, with special doors, whatever the case might be. Uh, so, But you absorb that cost. That's the law. You, you guys adhere to the law. The taxi industry has to do that, and it's not just in Hamilton. It's every, every Ontario city right now. Uber, according to this bylaw, is, can opt out of that, pay $20,000 uh, and opt out of that and not have to provide that. Now, and again, this goes back to this idea of a, play, a fair playing field. This, uh, it's, there's a, an inequity right now that puts you at, or at a certain disadvantage right now to incur certain costs that they don't have to incur. No, exactly. Like the OADA made it very clear that a certain percentage of your fleet had to be accessible. It's like when you put up an, a brand new building. You have to have your washrooms has to be accessible. The entrance has to be accessible. I mean, Uber gets around this by paying a fee of $20,000. Just to, to, to put a vehicle on, just to buy the actual accessible vehicle ranges anywhere from thirty-five dollars to $50,000 just for one vehicle. And, and they're getting away with paying $20,000 to opt out of the service altogether. Again, makes no sense to me. 
So where do you go from here? I mean, clearly, uh, the, the people I've heard from, yourself included, from the industry, the taxi industry, are not pleased with this. Uh, this is going to go to the committee tomorrow, which I assume is going to give it a thumbs up, and then, of course, to Council for ratification after that. Uh, is, is, is this too far down the road for, for anything to be done here? Do you look for modifications? What, what, what's the industry going to do here? Well, again, I think we're going to do the same thing we've been doing all along, and, and just when Uber entered the scene, we're, we're going to do our job. We're going to, give, we're going to service as, the best we can to our customers. I mean, we're accountable. We're going to make sure we do the right thing and, and keep our, our business going. You can't get caught up in, in, in watching what happens with the city and, and with the, you know, an unfair competitor that, that the city is allowing to operate. You know, we have to, again, you know, well the customer, maintain what we have, and, and move forward. It's just unfortunate that this, this app has attacked this industry because, and like you said, where do you draw the line? So, so what is stopping people from putting an app for a daycare, um, for, for food service? I mean, you know, they're all licensed entities. How do they get around it? Well, they wouldn't. The city would shut them down. For some reason that they choose this industry and everybody says, well, it's okay. But it's not. Um, it, it's, it's not. I mean, we have jumped through hoops and we've followed all the bylaws that the city has mandated to this industry, and we've done it and, and we keep doing it. I just think it's probably unfair that they would allow someone else to come in to do the same thing without any rules or regulations. Well, let's let's look at that and the, and the ramifications of that. Uh, for instance, accessibility. No, Uber doesn't have to do that, but you do. Uh, training of drivers. Uh, Uber doesn't have to do that. They say they do it on their own, but you have to take them at their word. Uh, how they're going to build the or the city's going to build them? Well, Uber will tell them how many rides they've had, and we just have to take them at their word in situations like this, as opposed to a much more strict regime that you have to follow. Is there an argument to be made for that? Well, if it's okay for Uber then maybe, maybe the taxi industry is overregulated, and maybe you should relax some of the regulations that are being imposed upon them. Well, that's, that's In other words, if they've set this as the new bar, why shouldn't you have that same privilege? And, and, that's, and that's where it looks like the city is, is kind of throwing us a bone by making some changes to Schedule 25. The only concern I have is that by dropping our standards and our, and our, and our levels, I mean, we fall into the hands of, of being like an Uber, and, and you really want to keep, at this point, is where you want to be strict and, and keep your vehicle conditions up, your driver you know, conditions up, and, and this way you know, you're going to be the best possible customer service rep in this industry. And that's kind of where we aren't going to move from that, even though they may change the rules and say, well, you know, we'll drop training and we'll, you know, we'll drop the age of vehicle and, and so on and so forth. I don't think that that works. Uh, I think our industry is too big, and I think the city's got a lot at stake here to just let kind of, you know, the, the wild, wild west of, of, uh, of the tax industry. Because we will. We'll go down to the lowest common denominator, and, and you can't have that. What's this doing to the industry? Uh, I mean, for one, I, I, mean, I talked to one person that owned, I think they said two or three different plates, uh, who in frustration, this was like back last July or August, I guess we were having a cup of coffee, and, and, and this individual told me, he says, I'm selling them. This is ridiculous. It, it's just, it's it's not worth the fight anymore, and the city doesn't seem to, to understand their plight. That, those were his words, but uh, is, is he speaking for a lot of other owners at this stage? Well, at the end of the day, these owners are, are here to stay. You know, they have the option to sell their, their, their license at any time if they feel they, they want to. Um, I, I think, you know, and we watch our numbers, and our numbers are still growing slowly, but they're growing. It's, it, Uber is making, you know, inroads at some of our night business, but at the end of the day, you know, they start off as a, as a novelty. 
people realize that they're not as good as us. They're cheaper, and I think that's what, what drives them more than anything. But, um, you know, like I, I tell a lot of people who are, who are into it, I said, would you let your daughter take an Uber home at 2 o'clock in the morning? Because you wouldn't be very smart to do that. I mean, there's a lot, that's, that, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. We have cameras, GPS, we can tell you the routes, we can tell you everything. But at least the customer feels safe knowing that they're on camera and knowing the driver's being tracked. Um, you know, there's a lot of, and you're hearing it through the news, there's a lot of stuff happening in that Uber industry that the people are posing as Uber drivers. They're not actually Uber. They're, they're out soliciting, saying, oh, I'm an Uber, I'm an Uber. I mean, they're actually out Ubering Uber. They, they get a customer in their car, and they say to the customer, look, forget using the app. Here's my phone number. Call me directly. I'll take 20% off your, your rate, and, I, and you can pay me cash. So it's, it's developing a, a whole new underworld market of, of transportation that I think is getting out of hand. If it's a, a taxi driver that, that is deemed to have been breaking the rules, like you say, it could be demerit points, could be driving habits, could be anything like that. There's, there's a, a licensing committee, obviously, and, and you know all about this, Anthony, but mm-hmm. for the sake of our listeners, uh, they go before that, they have to plead their case, and, and sometimes the license is pulled, sometimes there's a suspension for a little while, whatever the case might be. Uh, I, I don't see anywhere in here that Uber drivers are going to uh, have that same sort of situation, that same sort of protocol. It seems to me as if this is going to be self-policing. Well, it is. I mean, the whole bylaw, the way they set it up is for self-policing. But the, the thing is, they're, they're not accountable to anybody. You can't pick up a phone and call 1-800-UBER and say, I had a problem with a driver. I mean, here, you, you can. You can call us. I mean, we have, we, I mean, setting aside the city's regulations on... You said driver demerit points and stuff. Our insurance company demand it. Every time that they're, every six months, we have to provide our insurance company with driving abstracts to make sure that they meet their requirements. Because once they exceed the three moving violations or three demerit points, the, the insurance company gives you one, one or two options. You either get rid of the driver or they're going to hit you with a searcher. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.